0: This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you, yes. There's people in. There is. And they're alive. Hooray. Yes, Always a plus. It's, it's always a plus, yes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and anyone in between. My name is Val McDermott, and I'm here for the next hour to host the company of the remarkable Mark Billingham. Please give him a rousing Edinburgh welcome. (laughs) Now, if you're in the book business, you soon discover there are four categories of writer. Sometimes you love the books, and then you discover you really don't like the author. Sometimes you'd love the author, but you can't be doing with the books. Sometimes you hate the books and the author pretty much (laughs) equally. And then sometimes you love the books and you love the person who wrote them. Luckily for us tonight, that's my take on Mark Billingham. (laughs) (laughs) Had you worried for a minute, there, didn't I? (laughs) Ah.
1: This is going to be a very short session, I was thinking. Go
0: on. (laughs) So we're here tonight to talk about Mark's latest bestseller, Die of Shame. But before we come to that and to the rest of your career as an award-winning crime writer, I'd like to explore some of the road that's brought you to this point. Now, you grew up in Birmingham. You were obviously very attached to it because you also went to university there. Yeah. yeah. Most people take that as a cue to escape. What drew you to Birmingham University? You the only
1: place that gave me an offer. It's very, <laughs> so, I'd love to say there was some kind of, you know, plan. Uh, I, back at that time, I wanted, to be, I wanted to be an actor. It was all I wanted to do. I was at the kind of school where... It was very easy to be, you know, a state grammar school, really good state grammar school. Um, but the kind of school where you could be a bit anonymous if you weren't an academic superstar or, or really good at rugby or cricket or something. And I didn't fall into <laughs> either of those categories. But then the school play came along, you know, when I was about 12 and I got to be in Oliver and, you know, all those shows and stuff. And that was, that was when I sort of came to life because you, then the teachers would start to call you by your first name. You know, if you could be in one of the school places. And also the girls from the girls' school next door would come and be in your productions and you'd go and be in their productions, so you got to kind of hang out with the girls. So you
0: were like, totally please sir, can I have some more? Yeah,
1: (laughs) absolutely. Please, please, sir, can I have any, to be honest. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) some would be nice. Um, So I... um, I thought, yeah, drama, that's the road for me. Yeah. And I thought, I, I wanted to, so I wanted to do drama. And I, I applied to do drama at university at, you know, Bristol and Exeter and Manchester. And they all sort of rejected me. And then Birmingham gave me an unconditional offer. Back in those days when that my son's just gone through the whole UCAS system. And it's so different now. But back then, you just applied to five universities. Anyway, ended up at Birmingham. And I'm very, very glad I did, actually. I had a very nice time there.
0: So you completed your drama degree and you founded a theatre company, yeah. Bread and Circuses, that toured yeah. venues in... The West Midlands. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> are we going somewhere with this, Val? What are you. <laughs> well, finally you reached escape velocity. <laughs> <laughs> I got um, to go to Coventry <laughs> and Leamington Spa and Warwick <laughs> and. Uh... No, we were the... I don't know whether anybody remembers the, uh, the, the comedy series League of Gentlemen, but they had a theater, there was a theatre company in that show called Legs Akimbo. We were that theatre company, we, were, we dressed in dungarees, and we were kind of like this, and the worst moment ever came when we did a show on the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima in a shopping centre in Coventry. <laughs> and uh, we held 3 minutes silence for the dead of Hiroshima, in the middle of this shopping centre, all in dungarees, kind of. And there's people just wandering past, going, "What the bloody hell are they up to? The daft buggers!" And it was—I mean, it just makes me cringe to think how incredibly right on we were. Um, but you know, it was a rite of passage, and I'm very, yeah. I'm very glad. And that yeah. company's still going, actually, yeah. to this day. So I'm it's very just happy just about that.
0: But you did achieve escape velocity and went off to London. Hooray! I went to, to be London. an there actor. We go. Uh,
1: to be an actor, yes. Did that,
0: did that feel quite precarious after being in Birmingham? Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not a little village, Val. It's kind of, it's quite a major city that I'm extremely <laughs> attached to. The second city, I should say. Manchester always tries to claim it's a second city, but Birmingham is the second city. Um, In what sense? Uh, Bir- <laughs> well, we always... <laughs>
0: right. When
1: I was growing up, it was always like, you know, Birmingham makes the, makes the money that London spends. You know, it was the heart of the Industrial Revolution where I grew up. Mm. On the, in the black country, not the Birmingham, Is the black country, why are we talking about this? Because <laughs> it's where you came from. It is where, it's I, where I came your roots from, are. Yeah. no, so I went to, you know, I did this, I, so I stayed in Birmingham doing various sorts of theatre, in theatre and education and all that sort of stuff, till I was, a, I guess, about 25, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, moved to London to try and do kind of radio and telly and all that sort of was it stuff. Was quite
0: scary? Yeah, no, it was. No, it was quite
1: scary because I, I'd been in this theatre company with all my mates who I'd been to university with, and so suddenly to go to London and start having to go to auditions, you know, the sort of thing you'd seen on in film stuff, this is what you'd have to go to an audition and give your name and sit there with loads of other people and make an eye, try not to look at them because you know you're all up for the same job, mm. and you look at them like, they're going to get it, or they're so going to get it, and oh, bloody hell, fine. Um, <laughs> You can st- tell you're not from here. having a stroke. Um, it's, 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 just, it's just the tattoo. It's just the tattoo. Um, and
0: then, and of the course... the girl with the Edinburgh tattoo. Well, coming up here,
1: I mean, this is what... <laughs> this is what I did every year yeah. from about 19... You know, came up here for the first yeah. time with, a, with Birmingham University Drama Department in about 1980 or 81. And then I came up here doing stand-up. Because yeah. l- 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 you'd l- 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 always got the bad guy roles, didn't you? till you, got, till you started doing stand-up. Yeah, when I, was, when I was acting, I would always play, ironically, villains bent coppers, all that sort of stuff. In all those shows in the, in the kind of 80s and night. Like, Juliet Bravo and Dempsey and Makepeace. My first ever job ever. You were ever, Juliet
0: Bravo? I was in Juliet
1: Bravo. You weren't Ooh. Juliet Bravo. No, I wasn't Juliet Bravo, <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> okay. I was Julian Bravo, it was very different. <laughs> she was, uh, no, that was one of the first jobs I ever get, but the first job I got in Dempsey and Makepeace, I was shot across the bonnet of a car with a sawn-off shotgun. That was the first thing I ever did on, that was the first day's work in television, yeah. it was very... Uh, so, yeah, lots of characters who I, who I now write about, yeah. I played on TV, yeah.
0: So, was it, was it an easy transition to go from, from acting and, and casting calls
1: to actually doing stand-up? Um, it, was, it was quite a natural transition at the time. A lot of actors did that because um, when you're an actor, you are completely at the mercy of other people's perception of you. You walk into a, to a TV audition and you know straight away that they're looking at you going, he's too tall, he's too short, he's too fat, he's too thin, he's too dark, he's too blonde, whatever. Um, Whereas stand-ups, if you can do it, you can make a living. Nobody, you know, stand-ups are a right bunch of, you know, Weirdos. Nobody cares what we look like. So a lot of people drifted into stand-up, thinking I can make a living, and I'm in charge of that. You know. So yeah, and um, ended up doing it for 25 years. It wasn't. It wasn't a sort of. I just thought, yeah, I'll have a crack at this. I was going to see a lot of stand-up at the time, and I just thought, yeah, why not? I'll have a go. Did being totally in control of your own material did that make a difference to how you felt about getting up on stage? Oh, completely, completely. I mean, it's it's such a weird job, and and I say this quite a lot, but having moved from stand-up to writing crime fiction, <laughs> crime writers are a really nice, uh, happy-go-luck... I mean, you know, genuinely, they really are quite a sort of level-headed... <laughs> there are exceptions, obviously, <laughs> but... Um, I mean, I, you know, some people say that's because we get all our badness out on the page or whatever, mm. but I think, generally speaking, crime writers feel a little bit... you know, we're, we're, It's a bit of a gang mentality. We yeah. tend to stick together and we, we all tend to get on. Comedians are just in competition with each other from the word go. You know, you're on the same bill it's happening all over the city tonight. You know, there's four acts all part of the same show and each of them's hoping the other three die. <laughs> you know, it, it's a very weird thing. You know, your best friend could be on stage before you and you're listening to the audience laughing and you're going... Oh, and, it, and it doesn't foster a good kind yeah. of psychic, you know, yeah. Well, well-being. I think,
0: yeah, I think the thing with, with crime writing is it doesn't feel like a zero-sum game. Right. You know, they can like me Absolutely. without having to hate you. Yeah. Um, though, it is obviously easier. <laughs> um, but, well, but, know, but, but, yeah, I mean, it is that, that thing. I think most of us become crime writers because we're readers. Yeah. Because we, we're fans of the genre, and we spend a lot of time meeting people whose work we've been reading for years yeah. and,
1: and enjoying. Yeah, I mean, what, what tended to happen in comedy towards the end of the time I was doing it was... A lot of new, it was a very reasonably easy thing to get into when I started. I mean, I think, I think I did my first gig in about 1987. And within six months, I was playing at the Comedy Store. You know, you could do that. It was, you could just go and do the clubs and get better known. Um, then it became the big thing, you know, comedy became the new rock and roll and it became very hard to get into. So they started having a lot of new act competitions. So the people that would work their way up would then burst into the dressing room that first night at the comedy store and it were like, I'm funnier than you and you and you and they still felt competitive. And it was like, hang on, we're all putting the same show on. We're all part of the same evening's entertainment. Um, and that's how it should be, but it wasn't. It was I mean, they are a bunch of twisted Freaks, stand-up <laughs> comedian. Re- I mean, it is a very weird job to do for a living, mm-hmm. to essentially stand on stage and go, love me, love me, love me, which is kind of what... I mean, we do it to a degree in a different way with our books. We're still, we're still going, we are trying to entertain you. And I suppose the one thing that links everything I've done, everything that you're talking about, is that it's performing in one way or another. I think of writing a novel as a performance, just a very different kind of performance to being on stage for 20 minutes. But
0: After you started doing stand-up, you got a slightly different acting job because you got, uh, you got uh, a role in uh, Maid Marian and Her Merry Men. I did.
1: The children's sitcom, you I were did. Gary. I was Gary, I still am Gary. Part of me will always be Gary. Did you enjoy that? I bloody loved it, best best. <laughs> best job ever what is not to like I got to run about in, in the woods in, in Chainmail with a big sword for like for four years you know it was a, and it was a great show it was a show for anybody it was a show written by Tony Robinson um, uh, you know Baldrick out of Blackadder who created this show which was basically re-looking really at the Robin Hood myth that Robin Hood was this wimpy ineffectual character and it was, all, and it was made merry and it got everything done um, and it was the BBC made it and it was the sort of show that they just I uh, it was the sort of show they don't make anymore, because it was quite expensive. We built an entire village in the middle of these woods in Somerset, and it was all shot on film, and it was, it was just brilliantly done. And, you know, it had a lot of jokes in it for adults. In fact, when they showed, when they showed the programme in America, they showed it back-to-back with Blackadder at, like, midnight. and They didn't realise it was a kid's show at all. But, but they're Americans, so, you know, you've got to forgive them. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was a lot of fun, that show, and, and it's actually... By the end of the show, I got the job as a working actor. By the end of it, Tony was very busy and said, "Oh, you do some writing, don't you? I know you do stand-up and stuff. Do you want to start helping me storyline the episodes, write some of the episodes?" And so, by the by the time that show finished after four series, I'd become a television writer by default. Mm. So, did, did
0: that uh, sow the seeds for the, the children's books you've written as Will Peterson since? Did that sort of give you the yeah,
1: taste yeah. for yeah, for a little kids? bit? Because I'd, I've always believed that. Um, a lot of people write down for children. I think it's a really terrible thing. Oh, we know what kids like. They like custard pies and rubber chickens, and you know, this is at, at, at that time. I knew that the kids, the kids I knew, or the kids of that age, were actually watching things like Blackadder and Vic and Bob. And they don't like things that are aimed at them. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's a kids' show, is it? Mm, boring. Um, so yeah, I did try to try to write some young adult novels that. Uh, and they were every bit, and I know you've done the same, they're every bit as difficult to write as any yeah. adult novel. It's exactly the same process. And in fact, there were a lot more bodies in most of the YA books I wrote <laughs> than, than anything in there, probably, yeah. but there you go.
0: Yeah, My Granny is a Pirate it was one of the hardest things I've ever yeah, done. It it really really was, yeah, it is really it's hard. It is really
1: hard. And they're tough. a tough audience. They are. You cannot fool kids. You know, when when I've done events in schools, they will just tell you it like it is. They will just look you in the eye. The best thing I did, I did an event at a school once where... And I can so understand what this kid's thought process was. Um, I'm reading from a book, so I've got a book there and I'm reading it. But then there's a big table full of books that have been supplied by a local bookshop. And so afterwards I'm signing books and the the kids are buying books. They've been given money by their parents to buy books or whatever. And then this kid comes up to me and he just points to the book I'm reading from and he goes, I want that one, give me that one. And I said, I, I can't give you that one, it's the, only, it's the only one I've got. And he went, there's a table of them over there. And I went, yeah, but they're not mine. And he went, oh, pissed off.
0: <laughs>
1: <And I> thought, <laughs> only, yeah. He was only 12, but I mean, I, I kind of assumed so he thought, it must be your book. You wrote it. How can it not be your book? Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm not going to sit and explain how publishing works or book selling. <laughs> but I kind of got that. Yeah. When, when, I,
0: when I did My Granny as a Pirate, it was, it was up for a, a, kid, a, a prize. And, yeah. and the, the, it was voted on by, by the kids in, in the school, the local schools in, in, in Portsmouth. And um, they, they'd read all four books on the shortlist. They'd either read them in class or they'd taken them home with them. And they voted on them. And then so three of the, the, the groups were, were there at the, at the announcement of the winners. So I'm sitting here on the platform and they announce the winner, uh, and it's my book. And and half the kids are just jan- dancing up and down and really excited. and The other half of the kids are going. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. There's no, yeah. there's no prisoners, you know. No. It's, it's, like, yeah, it's,
1: just,
0: it's shocking. So um, you're having a, you're having a great time playing Maid Marian. Well, Gary.
1: Yeah, um, I always wanted to play yeah. Maid <laughs> Marian. That was a whole other thing. But
0: anyway. yes. well, we'll come back to that. Later, <laughs> um, but uh, and you were you were doing stand-up.
1: Yeah. What what made you moves from that into the, the long-form storytelling of a novel. Well, it was kind of... I suppose it was the missing piece of the jigsaw, really. I mean, while all this was going on, in fact, right from the age of sort of 13, I'd read crime fiction, voraciously, um, ever since a teacher at school read Sherlock Holmes stories to us in his own maths lessons. He would get bored in his own <laughs> maths lessons. It <laughs> was fabulous. Wonderful old character called Lem Bowles. Uh, never forget him. and. Uh, he would get halfway through a lesson on, you know, calculus or whatever and go, God, this is tedious. And we, and we kind of go, yeah. And he had this battered old bag and he'd pull out a copy of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes and just read a Sherlock Holmes story. Um, which is why I, I love crime fiction, but I can't add up, I suppose. It's simple. Um, but so, I, and, then I, and then I discovered some books for myself, great popular thrillers, Jaws and The Godfather and that kind of stuff. And I was always writing one thing or another, you know, terrible poems stories at school plays for this theater company stand-up but the one thing i never thought i could write was a novel because they just seemed to be like house bricks i thought you know like a half hour tv show seemed easy compared with writing a novel and it wasn't until i sat down and tried to write one and thought oh maybe i can you know, maybe I can do this, but it was the missing piece of the jigsaw because I was hanging around on the crime fiction scene, going to kind of conferences and hanging about, and, 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 and I lied. I rang up my local newspaper and said, ''Yeah, I'm reviewing books. I'm, uh, I'm a book reviewer.'' Uh, there was the Hammond High newspaper in North London. Suddenly they just started sending me books, and I, I just found a way to get books for free and, uh, <laughs> and thought, this, ''This is great.'' Um, so I was reviewing people, I was interviewing writers, and, you know, as I say, the missing piece of the jigsaw was to try and sit down and write one, and when I did, it finally felt like, ''Yeah, you know, this is, this is home, this is what I should be doing.
0: Yeah, never interviewed me.
1: Huh? You never interviewed me, Did by the way. Did I any. not? Oh, no,
0: no, no, you didn't, no. Oh, well. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not Would have been easier than this, I tell you. I'm not, telling, I mean, I'm not taking that personally okay, at all. Okay, fair enough. Not personally taking it at all.
1: No, not at all. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Most... Uh, we could never get past your people, Val. That oh, was the problem. Yeah, right. She's protected. I mean, My people,
0: I oh, right. Vicious,
1: vicious people. <laughs> I
0: wish. At least my people can book me a seat on a train, Jeremy (laughs) Corbyn.
1: He's here. I don't mean he's in here, but he's somewhere. He's close by. Sitting down somewhere because he can't get a seat. Most of
0: your your string of successful crime novels have, have Tom Thorne at their heart. Yeah. He's a stubborn, complicated copper with little time for authority, especially when it stands in the way of what he sees as justice. Where did he come from?
1: Well, the strange thing is, he wasn't uh, the, the character I most wanted to write about. I wrote... My first novel was a book called Sleepyhead, and it was about a woman who is uh, locked in a coma. And she was the main... She didn't have the stage time. You know, the most stage time was, was the detective that had to be a detective because she was a victim and he was investigating the crime. But she was the, the character I most kind of cared about at that stage. There was a copper because I thought there had to be one. I went, oh, well, I'll call him Thorne and we'll see where he goes. Um, and so I don't know where he came from because he's still kind of coming. If you see what I mean, I haven't got a big plan for him. I never drew a sort of a dossier of this is where he went to school, what he has for dinner, whatever. I just thought, well, let's put him on the page and see where he goes. Mm. I mean, did you, do, you know, is there a big, is there a big folder on Tony Hill and Carol no. Jordan? No, I mean, I, I well, think that's well, the best well, way. My, to do my, it. my copy editor has a big folder on Tony Hill and right. Carol Jordan because she's edited the books from the word go. Right. She
0: actually knows more about them than I do.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, all readers will tell you, right? Readers will go, hang on, why have his eyes changed colour? Uh, Uh, You know, that kind of stuff. Because, you know, so I don't know where he came from, essentially, because I hope he's still developing. If he's fixed somewhere in kind of amber, you know, and he's not changing, then I don't want to write about him anymore.
0: I think one one of the things that interests me about about Thorne is that you do something I think is quite unusual, most uh, people who write detective series have, have a partnership. They have you know, the, the principal detective and sidekick, or they have two equal partners, like Tony Hill and Carol Jordan, like Poirot and Hastings, like Morse and Lewis. Yeah. There's that sort of sense of, of you, know, you need the sidekick to show off the, the protagonist and all their glory. But you actually don't have a fixed sidekick for Tom Thorne. Mm. Sometimes the person who's around for most of the book, his sounding board, the one he talks to, is Phil Hendricks. Mm. But often it 's not mm. it 's other
1: characters. Um, did, did, was that a conscious decision, or was that just something that 's evolved book by book yeah it 's book by book, I just think it depends on what the story is yeah. and if there 's a story that, for example doesn 't really have a strong forensic element, then it would feel like I was probably crowbarring Phil Hendricks into it, and that mm. he 's a pathologist, so that would be the most natural way that he and thought so he 's more there as just a friend of you know. He's Thorne's friend as much as he yeah. is a pathologist, so he's his best friend, his only friend, really. Um, but, uh, but no, if it, if it fits the story better for it to be another character, um, then, I'll, then I'll go down that route, really, rather than, oh, they, they have to be in it and there have to be this number of scenes with them in it, sitting in the pub or watching the telly or whatever, or talking about the case. No, it's, it's story on story, really. Yeah,
0: and um, most of us, I think, if pressed... Would say that our detectives, particularly in series detectives, tend to fall into the, the category either of um, another side of ourselves, uh, our alter ego, or our imaginary best friend. Which one of those uh, is Thorne uh, for I you?
1: I wish we'd spoken about this beforehand.
0: Uh, I did, I, give you that, no, we I gave a, you the opportunity. We were sitting
1: having a beer about two hours ago, and I said, Shall I tell you what I'm going to ask? you?" hell. <laughs> I'm not going to get through this hour, I'm really not. <laughs> I said, "You didn't tell me about this." I said to Val, "No, no, no, just just throw stuff at me, It'd be much more entertaining." Now I'm going. Kind of, well, do you know what? I mean, I, I I never quite trust writers who say, "No, there's no no part of me in that character," you know. But the simple truth is, there's a bit of you in every character. I mean, and that yeah. that includes the horrible ones, that includes the villains and the killers and the horrible bosses or whoever it might be. You've got to put something yeah. of yourself. I mean, it's an acting exercise. I'd go back to this thing about it being a performance, and. Every character's got to give a good performance. You've got to get inside that character's head, step into their shoes, whatever. Um, No, I mean, that's the fun bit for me. It's all about the characters. Mm
0: -hmm. I remember our our mutual friend uh, Natasha Cooper once responding to that by saying, someone said, how much of you is in the character? And she said, more than I think and less than you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I've, again, the other area of writer I don't quite trust are the writers that talk about how they get ca- taken over by characters in some way like they... I was doing an event once with a writer I won't name. Alice Siebold was oh. who it was. Um, LAUGHTER we were on at this festival, and uh, she'd just written The Lovely Bones, right? Biggest book in the world at that time, whatever. So, you know, there's a big audience, and there's a Q&A, and obviously, she got asked that question, which we all purport to hate, you know, where'd you get your ideas from? But you're a paying audience, and they ask what the hell they like, right? So, where'd you get the, your ideas from? And she went all que- quirky and kooky and fetal. She literally kind of curled up on a chair, and she went, I don't even recognise the concept of an idea. I don't even know what an idea... And we are all looking at her going, what? So I, d- I just heard Susie's voice, and I channelled her voice. Now that that is just nonsense. That that that's mental illness. It is. It is, isn't it? That's that's what that is. Who's doing the typing? For Christ's sake! Um, you know the characters do what we want them to do because we're the ones doing that. Uh, so you know
0: don't you wish sometimes they would take on a life of their oh, own you know, do the laundry go the, pick up the <laughs> shopping you know yeah.
1: <laughs> well the dogs and I'll, yeah. I'll lie on a, you know like that Barbara Carlin thing just lying there with a the voice recorder just <laughs> going blah 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 that'd be great but no you have to do that that's typing by the way that's not <laughs> playing the piano badly whatever it is But no, that's nonsense, it's that idea that writing is a mystical thing and that ideas descend on fairy dust, you know. We sit down, we put our asses in a chair and we go to work and we try to tell the best story we can. It's not a mystical thing, you know.
0: Mm. Well, I think it's probably time we should talk a wee bit about Die of Shame, because that's purportedly why you're here. Yes. Um, now, although Thorne has a cameo role towards the end of Die of Shame, which is, I think is the sort of cameo role that if you've read the previous Thorn books will make you just have a wry wee smile to yourself. Yes. Um, but it's essentially a standalone. Uh-huh. You've done that before with In the Dark and Rush of Blood. What's the impetus behind moving away from your main series? Is it about challenging yourself or is it about stories you can't tell with Thorne? or What, what, it's what all that, yeah, takes it's you all, away from It's that? all
1: those things. And it's also that fear that I think all of us have who write series characters. You know, there are series that are past their sell-by dates. There are series where it's the same book, time and time again, and the same... And, you know, you look at the people who are able to do that over a long period of time and maintain a degree of quality, and it seems to me that the way they do it is to step away and do something else um not necessarily you know maybe it's every other book maybe it's once every two or three books but to tell a different kind of story in a different way and then you come back a year later re-energized and and keen to spend some time with those characters again Mm. um so yeah dire shame was a story that i had been wanting to to write for a while that there just didn't seem to be a place for thorn in i mean there's a detective in it a a new detective very different detective and that could have been thorn but it wasn't i wanted to write a standalone story with a different set of characters you know
0: I had a conversation with P.D. James not long before she, she died. Obviously, it was before she died. <laughs> Sorry, that would have been a bit is weird. Is there anybody you know? there? <laughs> Phyllis, talk to me. Yeah. And we were, we were talking about how, how many of the sort of old golden age motives for murder no longer work. Yeah. Um, and, and I said, well, what, what do you think is, is the strongest motive for, for someone to commit a murder? Now, and, she, and she thought for a second and she said, shame. And this book, I think Die of Shame, puts its finger absolutely on that point. It centres on half a dozen people who meet in a therapy group, and the aim is that they're there to overcome their addictions by talking, by communicating. And when one of the recovering addicts is killed, the finger points at the group. There's a detective, not Tom Thorne, Detective Inspector Nicola Tanner, who's constantly being stymied by their insistence on confidentiality. And also, when they do tell her something, she's Conscious of the fact that these are people who are well versed in in denial and deceit and deception, so I think it's a a really claustrophobic setup. And in that sense, it's almost reminiscent of of the Golden Age novel because it's that that tiny group of suspects. It's one of of these people.
1: What what set set the wheels in motion for you with this book? Um, I'd wanted to write about addiction for a long time. My best friend is a recovering addict. It has been for about twenty-five years. It's not me. It's not. (laughs) I'm not his best (laughs) best friend. (laughs) One of one (laughs) of my best friends. My best male friend (laughs) Uh, is a recovering addict. And uh, so we've spoken about addiction quite a lot over the years, Uh, you know, in in different ways. He's been clean for like 25 years. Um, But we talk about it a lot. And it was something I'd become fascinated about. And one one of the things that strikes me about addiction is that it's a leveler. It's a real leveler. Um, and the previous standalone I'd written, this book called *Russia Blood, was about people that meet on holiday. And again, a holiday is a real leveler. It doesn't matter how much money you make, what kind of car you drive, where you live, you're all the same around that swimming pool. Um, and that, I'm, I'm really drawn to those kind of ideas where people just are thrown together. So this is a, p- a group of people who are thrown together every Monday evening in this house in North London to sit and talk about their shame and their addiction. And they're you know, a very well-respected anaesthetist they're a middle-class housewife, they're an ex-rent boy, they're a kind of yummy mummy, they're a kind of compulsive overeater. There's people from all different walks of life, but they're all equal in this circle, because they're all addicts of one sort or another. Um, And I was, the anaesthetist one, that is, boy, there are so many addicts in medicine. So many, just by the time I'd researched this for five minutes. I mean, there there are plenty of NA and AA groups, that my friend still goes to, that are just for medics that are just for doctors, there's that many of them. And anaesthetists are the worst of all, because anaesthetists are the only branch of the medical profession that don't have to account for where they get their drugs from. Um, Absolutely don't, I mean, if you're a GP who's an addict, you at least have to be in cahoots with a patient and be writing false prescriptions and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, Anaesthetists can just go, I just need another five liters of fentanyl. Oh, okay. And they just, It's honestly, it's just, um, and so, yeah. anybody going for an operation tomorrow, relax. (laughs) It'll all be fine. But actually, operations is one of the things that made me... I'd read a book called Chasing the Scream by a journalist called Johan Harry about addiction. And it changed everything I thought I knew about addiction. And and if you read it, it will change everything you think you know about addiction. It's absolutely a gobsmacking book. uh, Because we think that what addiction is, is this simple chemical hook you get a hook. And I remember seeing films when I was a kid, gangster films, where somebody would have a, 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 a syringe of heroin, and they'd be like, tell me what I want to know, or I'm going to give you this, and that, this, that's it. From that point on, you'd be a drooling addict in a gutter. Um, and it just isn't, just the truth, it just isn't like that at all. You know, you've all been in hospital, you've all, you've all probably been, had operations and been on morphine, you know, and that's pure street heroin, that's pure medical heroin, 10 times stronger than any heroin you'd ever see on the street. You don't come out of hospital addicted to morphine. It just doesn't happen because you're surrounded by people that love you and care for you and are looking after you and and that's exactly what addicts don't have it's about a lack of bonds um and so i for me it became an interesting story to write about i didn't realize i was writing that kind of locked room mystery you mentioned until i was about halfway through and there was a scene where uh uh, the royal free hospital in North London, I wanted to set a scene just near there, and I went. To, I drove to visit the place, to have a look round, and there's this beautiful old Gothic fountain, and in the inscribed into the floor around this fountain are quotes from various authors. I don't know why, and one of them is Agatha Christie, and there was this Agatha Christie quote, and I thought that's going in, and it suddenly suddenly dawned on me what kind of book I was writing. But because uh, I'm no massive Golden Age fan, I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's not generally my cup of tea, b- and, but I thoroughly enjoyed writing a lot room mystery. So, what research did you do for this? Did you have to
0: become a heroin addict? Yes, or, yes. And, and, uh, uh,
1: I um well my 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 pal method writing method writing. No, my pal put me in touch with a couple of psychotherapists who are ex addicts because that is a very common path. So these are two people that he was in rehab with you know, 25, 30 years ago, who are now psychotherapists treating addicts. And I went to see them both. And they're two very different types of psychotherapists. One is very orthodox shelves and shelves of textbooks and all this stuff. The other guy uses kind of... Act- he, he's the guy who has celebrity, who has rock stars as clients and stuff. Uh, so he's a kind of an addiction relapse coach. So he goes on tour with them, and they might call him up and say, you know, three in the morning, go, I'm feeling bad. Come to my hotel room. And he'll go and talk them down and whatever, that kind of thing. And they were very helpful about how therapy works, very strong on the whole uh, confidentiality thing because it is a circle of trust and it cannot be broken and all that kind of stuff. And again, what a perfect group of suspects because you know, they just can't talk. And if they do, as you say, they're probably lying because their whole life's been defined by it. Um, so yeah, I just sort of, and, and you know, i read a lot, all the books that these therapists put in touch with me and I, I spoke to the therapists. And as I say, my closest mate is an addict. So a lot of his stories are in here, uh, both the, the dark ones and the funny ones because there are some incredibly funny ones. It's a very weird life yeah. that an addict leads. Um, especially a high-functioning addict, like a like a well-respected anaesthetist who's not struggling for money. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting world. What surprised you most when you were researching and writing this book? Um, it, it, it was some of the stuff that, I, that, I've, that I've alluded to about what addiction isn't. And it's just not the stuff we, we thought it was. It's not that simple chemical hook that's going to change your life. Um, they did an experiment... The common perception about what addiction is is based on this experiment they did with rats back in about the 1950s in America, where they basically stuck a rat in a cage and they gave it two water bottles, one of which had water in it and one of which was water laced with heroin or cocaine. And very quickly, the rat went, oh, yes, and overdosed and died. And everybody went, see, see, that's, that's, look at that, that's addiction. And this very smart psychologist came along in the 60s and went, hang on a minute, let's build a massive cage let's let's build rat world let's build paradise for rats and let's put lots of rats in that cage with the same two water bottles and so this rat's got lots of other rats to play with and toys and lots of rats to have sex with and all sorts of fun they didn't touch the, the bottle laced with her and then people went okay yeah but that's rats <laughs> uh, haven't you got a p- sort of experiment with people that indicates that and there wasn't one but then there was and it was called the vietnam war and what? Ha- no, it's bizarre. What happened in Vietnam was uh, one in four American troops was taking heroin on a regular basis. Twenty-five percent of all American troops were taking heroin. So the, the American public were going, "Oh my God!" When this war is over, our streets are going to be flooded with hopeless junkies because this—we know what heroin does. And they came back. Ninety-eight percent of them never touched heroin again because they weren't getting shot at in a jungle. Uh, and, you know, it, that stuff just shocked the hell out of me, that it's not just as simple as you take that, you're going to be a drooling junkie. Most people who take heroin just stop. Um, you know, and alcoholism works, works broadly the same way. It's not about, it's not a genetic thing. It's not, uh, you know, I say my, my, my friend was a junkie for a long time, he doesn't know what addiction is. Most addicts don't ever think about it, they just think about getting high. You know, they don't sit down discussing it deeply. Is it genetic? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Um, but what it is, is about not having bonds with people and about trauma and isolation, all that kind of stuff. Having said that, this is not like a treatise about addiction. It's a bloody crime novel. You know, it's just a mystery. But, um, you know, you find out things that, that fascinate you every time you do research, don't you? Uh,
0: oh, yeah. I, I think, but I think what, um, what struck me about this was actually um, the way you differentiated the characters which makes it clear that there's not just one paradigm for addiction. No. There are different reasons why people do things in different ways at different times. Yeah. And I think that comes over very clearly well, in, in the course of this. So that's why I just wondered about you know, what you'd actually done yourself, You know how far down the method you'd gone. Well, I mean, research <laughs> is...
1: <laughs> the, you know, the, the inbuilt problem with research quite often is that you can do too much of it. And... Yeah. and um, you know what happens when crime writers do research is they then tempted to crowbar every single bit of research they've done into, I've found this stuff out, you're going to bloody know about it, um, at, the, at the expense of yeah. the story. You know, it's we not all, just
0: crime writers who do that. No, no, it's I'm sure it isn't. Stuff, yeah. But we've all read
1: those books yeah. where you go, hang on, why is the story suddenly stopped and I'm learning all this stuff about? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you do the research afterwards. Yeah. And some writers do take it a bit too far, I think. I, I, I know a friend of ours
0: decided that she wanted to find out how easy it was to drown in the bath if someone yanked your feet from the bath so she asked her boyfriend to to do this with her to, you know to pr- try this in the bath see what happened and you know he duly you know yanked her feet and she went under and she was she was spluttering and, and coughing and drowning and snottering and and you know he pulled her up two weeks later she found out he was having an affair with someone else and you know she's like you know how close did i come <laughs> so, yeah.
1: It's a cautionary tale there for any, any, any would-be writers
0: thinking they might take the research
1: a little bit too far. Well, there, I mean, there are, there, there are crime writers. There's another crime writer we both know who... who I, you can fetishize it. You can make your whole life about research. And, I mean, research isn't writing. It's no. something, you, you know, you need to do sometimes. But you find out the stuff you need to know. But there are writers who are ever up in police helicopters and out on boats. And You think, join the police force, mate. Really? I don't... <laughs> You know, something you need to get off your chest here. Yeah. But, these are not, these are not, these are... These are if we wrote books that accurately reflected the way murders were well. investigated, the books would be a thousand pages long and they'd be as dull as ditch water and, you know, you wouldn't be happy with the ending. We're creating a kind of heightened reality, yeah. aren't we? And
0: yeah, I, I remember one writer who had a short-lived career about 20 years ago um, who used to write novels from a female point of view, the female cop at the heart of them, and he used to dress in a tight lycra bodysuit. When he was writing, so he could feel like a woman. <laughs> Shut the front door. Uh,
1: You'll tell me afterwards who that afterwards, was, right? Uh, uh, uh.
0: Uh.
1: But actually. I, Having I, said that, <laughs> <laughs> I, can see, I can see a certain amount of freedom, certain, you know. Yes. Anyway, sorry. We're just, just but actually, on,
0: on that point, I think yes. a lot of writers fall down when they, they try to write from the point of view of, of another gender. Hmm. But I actually think you're unusual in that you create a variety of interesting and credible women. Would you care to speculate why that might be?
1: (laughs) (coughs) Apart from the underwear, obviously. You're an evil person, Val. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, to be honest, you should be able to write any character, really. I mean, if you can only... Obviously, it's easier for me to write... Tom Thorne is a bloke in his mid-fifties, I'm a bloke in his mid-fifties. He's kind of easier for me to write than, you know, a, an 18-year-old girl or a 75-year-old woman or a, but that's the job, that is, that's the fun thing. You know, we have to write about people who are different to ourselves just to, you know, make it worth getting up in the morning and that's the job. And, yeah. and if you can't do that, then you really shouldn't be writing.
0: Okay, I broadly agree with you. Yes. That's <laughs> good, that's, 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 we're not that's gonna fine. Out. I'm not, we're not gonna have to follow it about that then. Um, it also seems to me that you are one of the few male writers who write about violence from the inside, not as a spectator, but from the perspective of the victim. Now, because I know you, I know you've actually been on the receiving end of a very frightening violent experience. Hmm. Do, do you think, did, did it seem to you that that gives you an insight into what violence is and what, what the nature of violence is that allows you to write about it in a way that makes it very scary because it's very felt?
1: Uh, I, yes, I think it pro- possibly does. I certainly know uh, what it's like to be afraid. I think that's the, that's the key of it. Is, is because you're kind of writing about fear. And I know I've heard you speak about this many times, this idea that you know women grow up with... you know, you, it's, it's there from a very early age, that thing of being afraid, just walking the street. Who's behind you? What's that noise? All that kind of stuff. In a way that young men don't grow up experiencing. So when you're on the receiving end of something where you genuinely are afraid not you know not i'm on a roller coaster afraid not scary movie afraid but am i going to see my family again afraid that does stay with you that absolutely does stay with you and rather in the way that an actor i guess you know i mean you're joking about method method writing but rather in that way that actors draw on stuff it's it's something that's in there when i when i want to write about uh, yeah. you know when an act of violence is is there because i'm not writing about what it looks like i'm writing about what it feels like yeah um So, yeah, and thank God I got something out of it. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the fact fact that I also jump uh, ludicrously, like, that's not a joke when those fireworks go off. My wife's in the audience and she'll tell you that she just walked into a room and I do that. I have a weird kind of hyper... I've met your wife. (laughs) You are so going to pay for that, after I, I, um, I know I am. I know I am. No, I do. I, I, I love you, really. <laughs> I jump. I, I jump at, at the slightest thing, mm-hmm. and I do think that, that's a very weird physical manifestation of that yeah. thing that happened but I think in some... Manchester. Never go to Manchester. <laughs> no.
0: it's, a, it's a way of processing as well. I, mean, I think one of the advantages of writers is that we have the page on which to process things that happen to us it's not that we write about the details of specifically what happened to us but we we draw on the emotional response the psychological response yeah. that allows us to put ourselves in someone else's
1: shoes i no, absolutely which is why i read i read your uh, rebuttal to that ludicrous article that appeared last week was it the guardian it appeared in. Yeah. it was you know some big study that basically said people that read literary fiction uh, are much more capable of engaging emotionally than than the idiots that read genre fiction i mean it was the most ludicrous article you've ever read um De- but that a just, deeply flawed study i know it was <laughs> deeply flawed. but, but that, that is just essentially just... what we're all trying to do is to write yeah. characters that readers can engage with and and if we can't engage them on some level then the reader can't you know?
0: yeah now two of the thorn novels were adapted by sky starring yes. the wonderful david morrissey mm. um, but sadly i'm told there won't be more but the bbc are doing something in a slightly different way. Can you tell us about that?
1: Well, they're making a series, a character who appeared five or six years ago in a book called In the Dark and is now, in the world of the books, uh, is Thorne's partner. You know, Thorne's uh, girlfriend. Uh, They are now making a series about her, about the character Helen Weeks. Um, So they've adapted two books into this series, which will be called In the Dark and will be out, it was going to be October, it's now January. Um, So yeah, they've made two books into a four-part series about her. Um, And even though one of the books they've adapted is a Thorn book, Thorn's not going to be in it. It's quite strange. uh, But it's, you know, world of telly, world of books. It doesn't matter. The books are still the same.
0: I think if I had to characterise you professionally, I'd describe (laughs) you as having a restless imagination. You're never satisfied with just one outlet for your talent. Are you? I mean, you present podcasts. you're about to start a new TV series interviewing crime writers. And for the last year, you've been performing with a country act, country music act, mm. my darling Clementine. You want to Tell us a bit about the other half.
1: Well, that was just a show. I, I'm a big fan of country music, which is why Tom Thorne is a big fan, fan of country music. And I'm a frustrated musician, like most crime writers I know. Yeah. Um, and I'd put them in a book. I'd name this act in, a, in the back of a book and sent them the book and they got in touch and said, let's do something together. So I wrote a short story based around their songs that became a kind of a full-length show that we've been performing and uh, made an album of it. And yeah, no, I thoroughly, I mean, it's, it's a big, you know, it's a big thing. I'm not joking with lots of crime writers. They, they are frustrated musicians yeah. and they chuck it, chuck it all in a, in a, in a heartbeat too. Yeah, and, and, and any little bit of musical uh, sparkle that falls on you from a distance. Uh, my, my wife's a TV director and she was making a show, uh, a, a crime show, a popular BBC One crime show. Uh, and it turns out that Pete Townsend of The Who is a huge fan of the show. So he came to visit the show and, and was talking to my wife and he went, you're married to Mark Billingham, aren't you? He was one of my favourite crime writers. Pete Townsend! <laughs> <laughs> yes! You know, you can, you can yeah. keep your, your daggers with yeah. Pete, you know, Pete oh, Townsend. Yeah. Yeah. Really, we, do, we yeah. all we all I, love a bit of that.
0: I, I signed a book for John C from Sigur Ross
1: Aye, come you know, on. So
0: it's like you know, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's much more exciting much than more anything exciting. else that I did that year. Yeah. yeah. Um, just on the subject of of, of of the country music thing, you, you know, Tom Thorne does. indeed love country music, and is the butt of many jokes from his friends about it. Yeah. And you also love country music, but you also love Elvis Costello who's had his flirtation with country music. And this is a purely personal question. I would like to know which came first, the country music or
1: Elvis Costello? Uh, Elvis Costello, he made, he made an album in 1981, which was a country album, mm-hmm. which turned me onto country music. It was lots cover songs of lots of artists I'd never heard of. George Jones, Hank Williams. Uh, Graham Parsons, all these people I didn't know and and so I bought the album because it was an Elvis Costello album discovered all those songwriters and in fact, and the, the band you mentioned that I was working with exactly the same thing happened to them so people of a certain age, I think anywhere between sort of 50 and 60, who bought that album were turned on to country music Oh, so certainly. now we know who to blame. It's Elvis' fault. Yeah. It's always his fault. So,
0: before I open it up to questions from the audience, yeah. do you want to tell us what you're working on next?
1: Um, well, the, 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 the new detective in that book, uh, Nicola Tanner, I've now paired her up with Thorne in, in the next book, which is a Thorne book, and they are investigating a series of honour killings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can honestly say that I've never felt angrier writing a book. It's really got me extremely worked up, the whole subject. It's one of those things that you start researching and you just think, oh my God, I just can't believe this stuff goes on. It's um, some, some really, really, I mean, one case that I, I, I researched when I was writing the book, is a case of a woman called Banat Mamoz, who, this about seven years ago, she was the first, hers was the first case of an honor killing where her murder had been paid for. She was a victim of, if you like, honor killers for hire. Uh, and in the end, they sent seven people to prison uh, they finally discovered her body. She was killed in London, buried in Birmingham, and they finally found her body. Seven people were sent to prison for it. The, the father and the uncle who had paid these killers, the men who had done the killing, various other members of the family who had hidden the body. And then as I was writing the book, the boy she was about to run away with when they murdered her killed himself. About four months ago as I was writing the book, like another victim of this... hideous and, and, and the figures are just shocking. There isn't time, but the figures are just shocking. Uh, of how many of these crimes, and we all write blithely about serial killers like they're around every corner, and they're really not. Whereas this is, you know, the number of honour killings that go on is is really shocking. So yeah, that'll be a laugh a minute when it comes out <laughs> next yeah, May.
0: And you'll get told off by your publisher for talking about a book people can't buy yet.
1: Yes, that's true. So, I should probably. So, but not they can have done buy. That.
0: You can buy Die of Shame. Yes. And Mark will be signing it afterwards in the signing tent. And it, it's it, uh, if you already have it, it will be a very good Christmas present for somebody that you love. <laughs> So, it's now time for you to have a chance to answer, ask some questions. But if they're you could, beautiful. If you could, yeah. <laughs> of course they are. They're Scottish. <laughs> Look at them. <laughs> if you can wait until the roving mic arrives with you before you start your question, that would be very helpful. Who would like to start us off? Or am I going to have to start picking Ooh, on people at random? No, let's
1: just pick at them. <laughs>
0: Don't be shy. There you yes. go. There's a hand. Somewhere here, there in the middle. There you go.
1: Right there. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It's really not Thank scary. Thank you for
1: being for that brave first souls <laughs> oh oh might not be thank oh, oh, God. oh God. Sorry,
0: no it was actually sorry i only start the ball rolling so everyone else man up um okay so it was actually to ask you about uh what you said about earning um so can you bring a little closer? how much money in? does an author make from each sale of each book
1: <laughs> How much money does an author make yeah. for its... <laughs> yeah. It's very complicated. Um, uh, not it, enough. Not is enough the is the simple thing. answer. Well, it doesn't... You, you Authors are paid... Um, those of us who are lucky enough to write full-time, the first thing to say is that 95% of published authors don't write full-time. Published authors still, still work as teachers, doctors, lawyers, bar staff, whatever. Anesthetists. Anesthetists. They have... Anesthetists. An anesthetist. they have they have jobs. If you're lucky enough to f- write full time, which Val and I both are, you are paid like an advance. They say, we'd like you to write two books, here's an advance. Um, but that, again, that's for two or three years of your life, however much it will take you, time it will take you to write those books. When that advance has earned out, when the publisher has sold enough copies to get that money back, then they start paying you royalties. If you're lucky enough to get royalties, broadly speaking, it used to be like a pound a hardback, 50p a paperback. Um, so, you know, if you're paying 16.99 in 99 in a bookshop, the writer might see a pound of it.
0: But Maybe. it gets much more complicated than that because of uh, things like Amazon, things like supermarkets and what's called deep discounting, mm. where the publishers do deals with the supermarkets and deals with other big retailers. So, for example, uh, a paperback you might buy in a popular supermarket Uh, We might be lucky to get 3 or 4p for that book um, in the balance sheet. Mm. So, yeah. We're we're the last ones to get paid.
1: 0.001 pence per copy of every book you take out of the library. Yeah. Which adds up. It does add up. It does add up. There you go. Straight in there with a nice fiscal, you (laughs) know... Forget all the arty-farty stuff, how much money do you make (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Anything else? We're going to have to start asking them questions a There you go. One, uh, Somebody else do it for the money. Sorry? I'm sorry? We actually don't do it for the money.
0: No. If you, no. Want, if you want to make lots of money, don't it be a writer. Don't
1: be a writer if you want yeah. to make no. money. No. no. no going no. to banking or insurance yeah. or... Drug dealing. Yeah. Yes. Quite yes. a good one. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and uh, I just wanted to know, in your next book... Have you got genital mutilation? (laughs) See see what you've started now. I think it might be mentioned. (laughs) But it's not, you know, there's not a pop-up book or anything, there's no pictures.
0: in my career as an Edinburgh Book Festival chair flash before my eyes.
1: There we go. The mic's being passed along. Nice inoffensive question would be <laughs> would be great. Where'd you get your ideas from? Come on, let's have it. If you're gonna be a musician, what would you want to, to sing or what would you want to do? Would it be t- country? Or yeah, I would want to be a singer-songwriter. I mean, I, I am writing songs, bit, so that, my new thing is to start writing songs, proper serious songs. When I was working on the stand-up circuit, I did comedy songs. That was my thing. So I can play a little bit and, and sing a little bit. Val and I have sung together in, uh-huh. in public on several occasions. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, so I, I just would, I, what I would like is to write songs that other people record. That would be my dream. Is for somebody like Elvis Costello or Nick Lowe, or you know, to record a song I'd written. That would be my dream, my dream.
0: So you're the weird guy that keeps sending those songs to Elvis. Yeah, yeah. Yep.
1: There, there is a restraining order, but we let's not uh, let's not talk about that right now. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes, old lady at the front.
0: Having seen the sort of level of questions that you've had this evening, I think I'm not going to ask her a question. Um, I'm just going to say that um, I think that I. I Love what you do, um, and I think that you know your My Darling
1: Clementine was fantastic. We went to see that last year, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. It was very, very different from anything I would have thought that you would have done, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thought it was very brave. and um, it was super. really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. It. And I would like to just say to people that they should... Go think and see it. Think, yeah, it. Well, see it. Yeah, I think you're doing it... You well, it. If, anybody, if anybody's you should, going I to... I think you're doing it in Stirling. We are it's doing it at right. bloody yes. Scotland yes. in Stirling, yeah. you yeah. should definitely go and see it. It's, well, go, if you're going to see any events in Stirling, apart from the events in Iron, yeah. go see, go see the show with My Darling Clementine and come see the England Crime Writers v. Scotland Crime Writers football match. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh... I'm thinking about getting some Wraith Rovers ringers in this show. It's, you don't need them. You don't need to bring ringers in. If anybody doesn't know, there's, there's been two such fixtures. And the first, uh, uh, Ian Rankin is captain of Scotland. 14-1. It was 14-1. For Scotland. For Scotland. Last yeah. year, 5 all. We're, we're, we're so, coming back, so this yeah. year could be, could be hard for.
0: But you'd really ought to go and see My Darling Clementine. It's a very, very good piece of entertainment. Very enjoyable. And, and as the lady said here, not at all what you'd expect. Nobody dies. Nobody died.
1: <laughs> no, it's a heartwarming. Yeah. It's not very country at all. It's got a kind of happy ending. But there yeah, you Yes, so that's a
0: little joke, isn't it? What happens when you sing a country song backwards? Get your wife back. Get your kids back. Your dog back. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so my question was around earlier in the presentation. You mentioned about how you really connected with the characters you're writing about. So when you write Thorn, you kind of see a bit of yourself in Thorn, and you see yourself in the characters. How much time do you actually spend seeing yourself in the killer of your
1: story? Yeah, Yeah, well, you have to. Yeah, absolutely you have to. And that's... um, It's interesting we talk about, like, seeing yourself in the character. Uh, And I know that Val's had the same thing if people have gone, you know, what does Tony Hill look like, or what does Carol Jordan look like, or what does... Tom Thorne looked like, or any cop that's been on telly. It doesn't actually matter to me what what Thorne looked like. And in fact, I remember going back about five years, you know, at this very festival, we showed a, a trailer for the for the forthcoming run of Thorne, and we, the lights went down and we showed this like three or four minute clip, and I was really happy with it and proud of it and everything. And then the lights went up and I said, "What do you think?" And a woman sat there, and went, "He's too tall." And you go, oh, no. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, it was instantly wrong to her in some yeah. way, but but. Because you're inside their head looking out the world through their eyes. So I know what the character thinks like and what, kind of what his opinion would be about anything. What he looks like is, is of much less importance. But you have to invest as much time in trying to get a killer right as you do in getting a cop right. The killer is two-dimensional and uninteresting. The, killer, the killers have got to be interesting. Um, but, uh, but and, 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 and it not just in a kind of how-they-kill way. Not in, you know, oh, this killer's interesting because what he does is chops people's heads off and then puts fish fingers in the cavity and call him the seafood slaughterer and it's just nonsense, it's just nonsense. You've got to... <laughs> having have <that>. um, <laughs> showed you my next manga. Oh, I know, I know. i got an early copy. Oh. Um, so no, they they they've got to be well well rounded and 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 well thought out and and yeah as interesting as any other character. Huh? I guess I
0: more kind of like how do you identify?
1: How do you identify do I identify with a killer? Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean I I don't mean I, I don't <laughs> I'm I'm very interested, and in that and there's a lot of this in this book, I'm much less interested than I used to be in that kind of patterned killing of of all that sort of serial killery stuff. And much more interested in what happens when good people snap. What happens when ordinary people do terrible things that we're all capable of. Everybody in this room is capable of, of killing somebody. If their loved ones were threatened, if their children were threatened, if of course you're capable of doing terrible things. Uh, so yeah, you have to be able to identify on that level and sort of put yourself in their shoes and go, what would I do if this happened in my life? And and, and that's, that's tricky territory to be on, but, but very fertile territory, I think.
0: I don't think you have to feel about people in your life being threatened in order to want to kill somebody.
1: Oh, no, Do I you see somebody throw litter, litter out of a car window. Yeah. That's enough for me. Yeah. I'm after them, I'm, and yeah. then I see what they look like and go, carry on mate, jog on. <laughs> I, yes. I don't know where the mic is now, the voice so can there. come from anywhere. Oh, it's over there. Hello. Hi- I was just, um,
0: I'm sure I speak for everybody when I say that the last hour has been really quite funny and everybody seems to have had a good time and a good laugh and stuff. But my question is, um, with the two years, because you seem to have a good relationship and a good history with each other, would you ever consider, consider collaborating on a book in the future, together? No. <laughs> hey,
1: do you know what? Hey. <laughs> it would never work it would no, just it never it work it would
0: be, it would be weird and, and, and you might not be my
1: friend at the end of it no <laughs> because it's, it, it, collaborating is hard it's very and, hard and, and you know just wh- practicalities where's this book set who's in it yeah. where you know is it set in you know, your part a, of the world my I've part of the world I've just done a collaborative short story with Peter James and yeah. that was hard enough yeah <laughs> Anyway, Trust me. Um, no, it is, you know, if, as a little sort of one-off, uh, like for short story yeah. or something for a, for a kind of fundraising book or something like that, but a novel, um, no, I don't, I don't think it would work. I mean, there are several novels, we've, we've both contributed to these novels, which, which happen usually in America, mm. where 12 or 15 writers will all write a chapter each or something like that, and the books are always awful. <laughs> they are, they're absolutely awful, never yeah. works. You need, a, you need a voice, really. Yeah.
0: I did one once where there was no... Oh, it's all right if you've got an overall plan, so you know what you've got to do in your chapter. Yeah. But the first time I did one of these, there was no overall plan. It was just everybody just followed on from the chapter before. I had the penultimate chapter, at which point the crucial clue in the book was an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka-dot bikini. Nice. Try, try working with that one. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. <coughs> what could go wrong? Oh, there's loads there's of lots hands of them now. Now. They've all got the these job. fine hands, all of them. Yeah. All the fingers in the right place and everything. Great. <laughs> Very good hand, that's a great hand, that is there. <laughs> and here it is, it's now, the microphone is now in it. I just wanted to ask, as you were talking about um, Bloody Scotland, what's your favourite book festival to perform at? Do you have one? Is it here? Is it Bloody Scotland? Really? <laughs> Got a loaded. Co- I have been, I've been to this festival every single year for, I think, 15 years, I think, since my second book came out, maybe my first book. Every single year I've done this festival. Um, and I, w- I absolutely wouldn't miss it. It's a festival where, where. I mean, I used to come up here to do stand up. So, like, an awful lot of poor souls out there tonight struggling around trying to get six people in a room and, you know, just honestly having strokes and mental breakdowns doing it every night before we. You get to come up to this festival where they, you know, you get an audience, you get a really nice audience, largely, the, the odd slightly weird question, but they are... <laughs> largely, largely lovely audience. You know, they put you up in a nice hotel, they, they treat authors very well. And it's become a big issue in, among, amongst authors in the last few years because a lot of authors are just treated very badly at festivals. Like, they're not paid, you know, it's authors' time. And the fact that some festivals think they can pay everybody else except the authors is kind of disgraceful. Um, is just one of the best book festivals in the world, yeah. bar none. There you
0: go. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Someone here and someone here.
1: Still time. time for two quick questions. Oh, two quick ones. Uh, hi, coming. Oh. Uh, my is about gender. Just to say that crime fiction is a, is a genre that women are very good at writing. There's a lot of exceptionally good women writing it, but a lot of our detectives still seem to be uh, male. And I enjoy myself reading your books because there are female characters who are the detectives. Do you still think there's room for far more female detectives? It still seems to be that the most famous detectives um, are, are men, despite the fact that a lot of women are writing in this genre.
0: I think the, yeah. the, the, the fame issue tends to be because that's what ends up on television. And television still seems to be, uh, leans towards the male detectives and, and what they put on the screen. Um, but actually what's on the page, uh, certainly women uh, hold up, hold, take a prominent role, I think, it's without a doubt.
1: Yeah, and I, I certainly think in the way publishing has been, crime publishing has been the last couple of years. It's massively dominated uh, by women. Um, and and and, uh, you know the whole rise of, I I hate the term, but the whole rise of domestic noir or whatever you call it has actually been around for an awfully long time but has Mm -hmm. suddenly become hugely trendy you know, the girl and the girl, any book that's got the girl in the title essentially the girl on the train in the red coat with the this and Um, lots of different, you know I'm
0: working on the girl on the bus from Lesma Hagel
1: yeah, there you go (laughs) number one bestseller
0: got no idea where Hegel is have you no, no, no. but I want to okay. go one time for one last one last quick question and then oh. I'll be getting I'll be getting
1: the hook the hook is coming off the hook the hook I don't know where this mic's coming out. it's like past the parcel S- it's S- like, oh, kind of when the music right. stops when the fireworks stop there you go I, I do know Hello. how quick this is but I was wondering are the rules for the murderer in the, you know you couldn't have a character that hasn't been in the book up until you've discovered him, or her, are there other rules? There should be, and and that, no, I mean, there have been all, all sorts of rules about writing crime fiction, you know, people going back a hundred years, you know, people have written rules, and they're all mostly nonsense, but that is one I completely, that's, just, you see, that's just cheating. It's really easy to have a crime novel when suddenly in chapter 68 somebody jumps out of a cupboard and goes, it's me, and you go, what, have you, Who are you, that's so easy. No, I mean, no, the killer has to be in plain sight, for me, uh, and in the crime rights I enjoy. And that's part of the game, that's part of what you... You're trying to fool the reader, you're trying to introduce. you know. Um, I also have a problem with uh, books where you have... An, I there's nothing wrong with an unreliable narrator, but the idea that by the time you finish the book, you realise that nine out of ten things somebody's been telling you is a lie, when you're inside their heads. That feels a bit cheaty to me as well. So I think there are certain rules, but you set them yourself, don't you? They're just certain things, yeah. and they're based on what you like to read, I think.
0: Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's, it's, about, it's
1: about your relationship as a reader with the book.
0: Anything yeah. that makes me go, oh, for fuck's sake.
1: Yeah, 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 there yeah.
0: There should be a rule against. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. 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 It's the yeah. throwing it across the room rule. Yeah. No, I'm not yeah. in that.
0: And I, actually, for, yeah. <laughs> I previous house I lived in had a dent in the wall where I threw a book so hard at the wall <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and,
1: and, I, and I do think readers should do that, I think if you're not enjoying a book for God's sake, you know, Don't. close it put it down, pick up another one, there's way too many people plough through books because they think they owe it to writers, mm. whereas in fact the writers let you down, the writer is not doing their job if you're not enjoying a book, I mean life's too short, reading should be for pleasure
0: Life is too short for bad books and bad wine
1: Yeah <laughs> That seems like a very good point to yeah. <laughs> finish <for laughs>
0: And on that note, it's time for you to rush to the book tent and buy Die of Shame. Thank you. And also, thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you.
0: Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk
1: on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.